Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we're doing something we've never done on the podcast before. And honestly, I can't believe that I've never done this because we talk so much about the evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity, the reliability of the Bible, and the resurrection. But we've never done an episode where we put it all together, equipping you how to make the 12-point case for the truthfulness of Christianity. We're going to do that today. We're going to walk through how to build a classical case to demonstrate that Christianity is true. So I'm very excited. I hope that will be helpful to you. I hope it will be fruitful in your life and in your ministry. Before we get to that, though, I want to invite all of you, if you've been a listener of this podcast and you've really benefited from the content, would you go on over to wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Google or Apple or Spotify, and rate and review this podcast. You all have done such an amazing job of leaving thousands now uh, of great reviews on Apple and the other platforms. If you haven't done that yet, it's a great way that you can support the podcast because that helps get this information into the news feeds of more people. And actually, today's episode would be a perfect episode to share with some of your friends because we are just building the classical case for Christianity. Now, I've invited my friend David Geisler, who is the son of Norm Geisler. If you're unfamiliar with Norm Geisler, he's the founder of Southern Evangelical Seminary, who's a sponsor of this podcast and where I am a student currently. And I'm very indebted to Norm Geisler for his years of faithful scholarship and so thankful for his life and ministry that really helped me when I was in faith crisis. And part of that was building this case, the 12 points that demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity. And I think that by the time you get to the end of this episode, you're really going to see 
why and how Christianity is the best explanation for reality. If we think about all of the big questions that people ask, those, those big worldview questions, who, what are we? What kind of a thing are humans? Why are we here? Obviously, there's something wrong with the world. What is wrong with the world? How does that get fixed? And what's, you know, where are we going? What's that eternal uh, destination for every person? Where is this all heading? These are the deep worldview questions. And the 12 points of Christianity is going to build a case for uh, the reliability of the Bible, the resurrection, and really help equip you to make a quick case with your friends as well. So I loved having this conversation with David Geisler. He's really carried on his dad's work, kind of passed on the torch, so to speak. He picked it up and has brought so much great uh, information to us. He's also, uh, we want to promote the movie Not Qualified, which is a documentary about his dad, Norm Geisler. We talk about that a little bit. There are some links in the description where you can actually host a viewing of the movie. If you haven't seen it yet, it's now available on DVD. So there's a lot of really cool stuff going on that I don't want you to miss. But without any further ado, here is David Geisler. So David, you're you're really more of an evangelist at heart, as you were sharing okay. with me. Tell, tell a little bit about your story, because your dad, of course, is Norm Geisler, this classical apologist that is famous for these intellectual heavyweight arguments for the existence of God and the 12 points to prove Christianity is true, which we're going to talk through today. But share a bit of your background coming more from the heart of an evangelist. So growing up, I started witnessing. Oh, I accepted Christ when I was five years old. I started witnessing when I was in grade school and in seventh grade, I led my best friend to the Lord and his whole family came to Christ and um, his father went into the ministry. And, you know, I just had a passion for evangelism. I thought if you're a Christian, you should share your faith. But I was very thankful for what my father taught me uh, because, you know, I never had any doubts about my faith ever from mm. the time I was five years old. And so I actually, you know, didn't, I was more passionate about evangelism than I was actually about apologetics because I had the answers. So mm -hmm. I wasn't struggling in my faith. I um, bet like, what, what was your response when people would debate your dad and when you'd, you know, when they'd have questions or come with a skeptical argument, were you just totally confident that your dad had the answers and that it was all going to be fine? <laughs> to, to be honest with you, Elisa, um, I felt sorry for whoever had to debate my dad. <laughs> uh, and when he would have debates, I would literally pray that God would have mercy. Wow. His opponent's soul. So I never prayed that my father uh, would win an argument. I, I, I knew that was a given um, because he helped me understand that all truth is God's truth and that we didn't just necessarily start with the Bible as the word of God. We started with truth and we can demonstrate that, you know, from science and philosophy that God exists and God exists, you know, the 12 points that show that Christianity is That's too. Right, yeah. Would you believe I taught my children the same thing? And so when my little girl, Rachel, was 10 years old, she memorized all 12 points. And I have a video on YouTube, I don't know if you've seen it, that where she memorized. And, and that's what I think we should be doing with, um, we should encourage Christian parents 
to have their children memorize the 12 points that show that Christianity is true. Well, I'm really excited to talk through those today, but I want to build a little bit of a foundation first. I know that your heart is evangelism, but you have this benefit of coming from this stock of apologetics, and you're integrating the two in such a cool way to really help Christians do better evangelism, to really give them uh, great practical advice on how to witness to their friends. And so um, when you talk about effective witnessing today— uh, you talk about building spiritual bridges. What is that about? And and that really should come first because, you know, I've heard the phrase, I've heard people say, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. And I get what people say, but at the same time, I think some people have been argued into the kingdom, you know, through the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. And so there's always this tension, I think, for people between the intellectual arguments, you know, the reason, and how much of it is faith and what is faith and how do these things work together? So talk a little bit about that and how to build those spiritual bridges before we even get to the information of the 12 points. So um, 1994, I was hired by Campus Crusade to come to UT Austin and develop a national pilot program for graduate students because Lisa, uh, by 94, they had determined that just a simple gospel approach wasn't working. And so I did that and I developed some apologetics with that. And I guess a good way to understand why we can't just share a simple gospel booklet with people is, remember a quote by Gene Vieth in his book, Postmodern Times, he said this, it's hard to proclaim forgiveness of sins to people who believe that since morality is relative, mm. They have no sense to forgive. Yes. And that's the problem when we're trying to build bridges. That's why we need to do what I call pre-evangelism. My father and I talked about that in our book, Conversational Evangelism. So sometimes we need to do pre-evangelism before we can do evangelism. What, what does that involve? Well, it's practically, it's helping people to understand their distortions that they have about themselves, about God the Father, and about Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this. One day I was talking to a student on a college campus, and he asked me this question, why can't God just let me into heaven? And so in our book, Conversational Evangelism, my father and I raised four questions that you and I should ask and answer uh, before we answer someone's question. What's the question behind the question? What are the terms we need to clarify? What's the truth we want them to understand? And what's a story or illustration or question we can use to illustrate the truth? So let's just deal with three and four. What is the truth I wanted the student to understand? Well, I wanted him to understand that we tend to overestimate our own righteousness and underestimate God's holiness. Now, how can I help a postmodern person understand that propositional truth? Well, the best way I have found is by using questions, illustrations, and stories. So I noticed he was drinking a cup of water. And I said, can I put a little sewage in your water? <laughs> no, that wouldn't be okay. And I said, well, it's just a tiny bit of sewage. 
you said still wouldn't be okay. And I said, ah, so you see how something small can have a big impact. He said, yeah. I said, you know, that's kind of how we look at our sins. But unfortunately to God, they have a bigger impact. And so my next question is, is it possible our sins could cause a bigger barrier between us and God than we think? Mm. Now, that's all pre-evangelism. But the other thing we need to understand is that when you're witnessing to someone, Elisa, uh, I, I, my father taught me that there are two things that you need to help them to understand. First of all, you have to help them to come to some kind of conclusion that Jesus is who he claims to be, and that involves apologetics. Um, and that's what I call belief that, right? But then once you've helped them with the apologetics to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, you've got the more difficult decision, uh, or, or that person has a more and more difficult decision, and that is they have to decide, do they want to put their faith and trust in Christ? And that second decision is much more difficult than deciding whether there's evidence that God exists and Jesus is the Messiah. And so sometimes when I'm talking to students or actually anyone in, in general, Lisa, I would say something like this. If they're asking me questions, I'll first of all say, oh, I'm, I'm just curious before I answer your question, I just wanna know another question, uh, an answer to your question. If you could know the truth, would you wanna know? Mm. And especially, would you wanna know the truth if it had moral implications on your life. Yeah, I, that's such a good point because I follow your dad's um, research on what the essentials of Christianity are, and he's got two different categories, what you would have to actually be intellectually aware of, and then, of course, what would be logically necessary for you to even know those things. And it's interesting as you go through the list, it's sort of like these propositions, but then you get to the faith component. And you realize that all all of those beliefs that are sort of listed out as propositions, even the demons believe all of those things are true. They, in fact, they know those things are true. And yeah. so it's really putting your trust in Jesus. Of course, our intellect is involved in that. But uh, that is such a great point, and especially the point about the pre-evangelism of convincing people that they're sinners. I think there has never been a time in history where that's been more difficult, at least in America, because we look at all of the entertainment that is streamed into our homes telling us you're perfect just as you are, you should trust your instincts, your heart is good, dig inside yourself and find the gold inside of you. And so when you go around telling people, and I, I discover this even when I speak in churches and I just read very basic Bible verses about who we are as human beings. We are by nature children of wrath. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Jesus talking about all manner of immorality coming out of the human heart. I, I actually sometimes can feel the tension in the room, in a church even, and have to say, all right, are we okay right now? Like, I know this yeah. is so different than yeah. what you're used to hearing. And so well, it's tough. It is. And, and, and my father taught me this other principle. I'm sure you know this as well. Christianity is a system with of truth with some minor differences um, in terms of people's beliefs. 
All the other religions in the world are a system of air with some truth. And it's very important that we keep that in mind when we're talking to people. No, I don't have all the answers. You know, um, you know, Christians disagree on the charismatic issue, free will, predestination, their uh, eschatology. There's a number of issues where we disagree with one another. But we do believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, 1 Timothy 2, 5 says this. Um, so Christianity is a system of truth with minor errors. And maybe when we get to heaven, we'll find out what those errors are. All the other religions are a system of error with a little bit of truth. Like we all have some form of golden rule, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so we do have similarities, but, you know, all the other religions other than Christianity are an ideology. Um, Christianity is the only religion based on an historical event, the resurrection. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, what? Your faith is in vain. So our faith is only as valid is the object in which it's placed. Um, mm, when I'm explaining to people, what does it mean to believe in Christ? I use this illustration. Um, when I married my wife, Charlene, I believe that she would make a great wife based on the evidence. I would have never married her unless I thought there was good evidence that she would make a great wife. But at least that evidence never forced me to say I do to her. That was a decision of my will. In a slimmer way, apologetics can bring the horse to the water, but only the Holy Spirit can actually help it to drink. And I think it's really, really important that you and I keep that perspective when we're talking to people. Furthermore, um, my father taught me this principle that I can trust God for what I don't know because of what he's revealed to me that I do know. And I, I went through a crisis when my uh, sister committed suicide um, um, 21 years ago because I thought to myself, how can I be happy in heaven if my sister is not there? But then I remembered Revelation 21.4 promises me that someday God will wipe away all my tears. And I don't know how I'm going to be happy in heaven, but I know the, pro the Bible promises me that I will be happy and I can believe the Bible because Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word won't. And I can believe Jesus because he claimed and proved to be God. Um, so essentially because I had a, a apologetic foundation, it helped me get through a very, very difficult time in my life. Well, I want to pause the conversation just for a moment to talk to you about today's first sponsor, and that is our friends at Good Ranchers. This is American meat delivered right to your door, frozen, ready to put in your freezer and pull out, thaw out for your next grill out. Listen, we're heading into summer, and we've just done our first couple of grill outs, and it is so fun. I love the summer grilling season. We grilled up some beautiful steaks from Good Ranchers, and they were so good. Now, there are so many reasons that I love Good Ranchers. Number one, the quality. I really care about the kind of food 
food that I feed my family. And with Good Ranchers, all of the beef is American-grown and harvested. It's grass-fed, no antibiotics, no hormones. The chicken is better than organic chicken, heritage breed pork. It's just the highest quality meat you can get, and it's delivered right to your door. Now, this month, in the month of May, if you use my code, which is Elisa at GoodRanchers.com, you're going to get $30 off your first box. So that's the code ELISA for $30 off. Now, one thing I haven't really mentioned on the podcast before that I love about Good Ranchers is that they actually give back. Did you know that Good Ranchers donates 10 meals for every box ordered? Over the course of their giving back, they've donated over a million meals to Americans in need. That is very generous. That is awesome. Here's another perk you're going to get if you subscribe this month. We all have seen our grocery bills go up. Even the brand Nestle is raising their prices by 10%. If you subscribe to Good Ranchers in the month of May, you're going to lock in your price for two full years. I can't believe every time I go to the grocery store how much higher the bill gets. If you subscribe to Good Ranchers in the month of May, your price will not go up for two years. So go to GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ELISA for $30 off your first box. That's GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ELISA. And also, I have uh, personally experienced something very similar when we went through the uh, the death of my nephew. It was very sudden. Just the hope of the resurrection built upon the evidence for the res- resurrection. It's like I never—and I have a friend also who had a brother who passed away very suddenly as well who just clings to that evidence for the resurrection. So I think that some people can think, oh, it's just, it's just all intellectual and we want to get back to the heart. But they're really integrated. And so I'm excited to talk through these 12 points because I've, we've never done this on the podcast. And it's it seems so foundational to apologetics. And I can't believe I've never done an episode on this. So I'm very excited. So for everybody listening, these are the 12 points that show Christianity is true. And if you can just kind of learn these, learn a little bit of evidence to prove these propositions true, you're going to be going a long way to, to help make that case from an evidential standpoint. So let's talk about number one. The first point, and this is where we have to build everything on, because points 2 through 12 mean nothing if number 1 is not true. And so what number 1 is, is that truth about reality is knowable, right? So this kind of flies in the face of the postmodern culture we're living in. We have to back up sometimes and convince people that truth about reality is knowable. Talk about that one. So uh, my father also taught... uh, this illustration to me, uh, Winnie the Pooh, he's knocking on uh, Mr. Rabbit's door and saying, anybody home? And Mr. Rabbit doesn't want Winnie the Pooh to eat all his food. So what does Mr. Rabbit say from the closed door? Nobody home. And Winnie the Pooh scratches his head and says, wait a second, there's got to be somebody home to say there's nobody home. There's some things, Elisa, that are undeniable and truth is one of those things that is undeniable frank turk does a great job of this when he does his presentation and he's so much funnier than i am so but this whole idea try to deny that truth exists right you have to use truth in order to even deny it i mean we all admit right that uh, truth that we exist, right? How do you deny your own existence without affirming 
your existence in the process of denying it. So, you know, if truth exists and something can't come from nothing, then what's the only conclusion you can come to? Something must have always existed. Why? Well, because if there ever was a time when there was nothing, there would still be nothing. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of the argument, but that's how my father used yeah. that argument. And when people had questions, that's exactly what I would say to them. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Frank Turek and his famous line, when people say there is no truth, what should you say? Is that true? And that's, you know, I know that's almost cliche at this point, but it's really true. Even to say something like all truth is relative or all truth is subjective. Well, if that truth is uh, it, you have to, there, it has to be objectively true that all truth is relative for that statement to even stand. And if that is true, then it's not true that all truth is relative because at least one truth, which is the statement you just said, would be objective. So I think one thing that people might misunderstand when we say truth about reality is knowable is we're not saying that everything there is possibly to know is knowable. I mean, there are some mysteries, right? There are gaps in our knowledge. There are things we will never know. But there is truth about reality to be known and to be confident in and to, to come about with certainty. And so I think that's probably one of the toughest things, aside from telling someone they're a sinner, is to convince them that truth about reality, especially when it would come to religion and morality, that those things right. are knowable. So that's that's where we start with our case right well yeah and and I, I don't think most people would deny that absolutes do exist it it's almost like that when it comes to uh religion then they decide that no 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 in the area of religion things are relative but they're right. absolutely certain of that right yeah <laughs> Well, and the way most religions work, you can see why they would think that. If you look at the Buddhist Eightfold Path and the New right. Age and some of these other religions, it's all about maybe finding something that works for you, some practical steps or rituals to give you more peace in your life. But Christianity doesn't right. work that way. Christianity, like you mentioned before, stands or falls on the resurrection. Right. If the resurrection of Jesus happened, right. then what he claimed about himself is true. And that right. means it's true for everyone, which means it has eternal consequences for everyone. I don't want to get right. ahead of myself. So let's move on to number two here. Sure. So number one is truth about reality is knowable. Number two, the opposite of true is false. Now, that seems so obvious, David. Walk, walk us through that one. So when I'm doing seminars, I, I usually use this illustration. I said, you know, if I, uh, if my wife were here and you were to ask her, is she pregnant? And she said, no. And I said, yes. Um, what would you think? You would think that there's something I don't know, right? Yeah, right. Right? Because, you know, my wife is either pregnant or not. Um, you cannot deny the law of non-contradiction. I mean, we, we live by that, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that's, I don't find too many skeptics and atheists disagree with that. Um, even Tom Jump, when I was on his YouTube uh, uh, channel, he agreed that something can't come from nothing um, and that there was a God, uh, not a God, but in his mind, quantum, quantum fields that mm -hmm. always existed. But in his mind, he used the laws of logic uh, to come to that conclusion that something 
must have started everything. But yeah. he just happens to believe it's not God. And I'm saying that it's very, very difficult. Um, it's impossible to deny the laws of logic because what? You're using the laws of logic. Even that's right. That. And that's why my father, his, his little statement about that which is undeniable is that which is true. That which is unaffirmable is that which is false. And that's how you tell the difference between true and false. What is unaffirmable, all the other worldviews other than theism are unaffirmable or contradictory in some way. Theism is the only worldview that is undeniable. And then from that worldview, then you look at the evidence. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. Here. I know it's hard not to. It's fun. <laughs> You mentioned the law of non-contradiction. I just want to explain what that is for anybody who might be unfamiliar. The law of non-contradiction is a law of logic that just basically says that two contradictory statements can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. So if I say, uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, uh, I'm holding up a pen. So if I say, this is a pen, and then I say, this is not a pen at the same time and in the same sense, I have just contradicted myself and violated the law of non-contradiction. Now, that might seem really obvious, really common sense to a lot of people, but it it comes more concrete when we apply it to religion. So I always like to look at the difference between Christianity and Islam. Sure, we're going to find some things in common. There's a rich uh, discussion of Jesus in Islam as there is in Christianity. There's even some things we believe in common about Jesus, that he was a great prophet, that, uh, that I believe even Islam believes Jesus is coming again. But right. where we contradict is over Jesus' death. So Islam teaches that Jesus never died, whereas Christianity, as we've mentioned, stands or falls based on the resurrection. Well, if you don't have a death, you don't have a resurrection. So if Islam is right about that, then the entire belief system of Christianity falls. This is why the law of non-contradiction is so important, especially when we reply, apply it to something like religion. So we, the first two points have to do with the nature of truth. What is right. truth? Well, truth is just a statement that corresponds with reality. It's something right. that you say that it lines up with what's real in the world. Now, I again, for some people listening, they might be scratching their heads saying, this sounds so obvious, it's such common sense. But really right. in this postmodern culture we're in, I, I think these first two are probably the hardest sell. Yes. And you have to start there. One of the things that my father also, I've heard him say a number of times, that if you don't start with the issue of truth, you can say God exists, God doesn't exist, and both are true. I mean, somebody can claim that. So that's yeah. why you have to start with truth, because you can't even, you know, it, it used to be he had 10 points in his argument uh, for Christianity. And then he realized uh, before Frank and him wrote the book and before he wrote the 12 points um, that you had need in the culture we live in to add those two, because you know, people are denying that reality exists and that you can know truth. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's Especially among the younger generation, I think even among Christians, as I speak to younger audiences, they might say, yeah, Christianity is true for me and I love Jesus and I'm following Jesus, but I'm not going to tell my friends that they should convert to Christianity because in the postmodern mindset that they've sort of grown up in, that's really viewed as 
kind of judgmental and and bigoted. So this is why these points are yeah. so important. Okay, so let's move on to number three. Now the third, the third, this one blows everything open, right? So number three, this is a bold statement, but we're going to back it up here, and that is is that uh, it is true that the theistic God exists. Now, David, there's several ways we can go about proving this, but but talk about that point number three. It is true that the theistic God exists. And explain what we mean by theistic. Okay, by theistic, we're saying that there is one God who created the universe who's separate from the universe, okay? And that separates it from pan, a pantheist who says, God and the universe are the same. So uh, John 4.24 says God is spirit. God is the uh, eternal being who created the space-time um, world we live in. Okay. And so the basic arguments for theism are the cosmological, the theological, and the moral. And one of the important things my father taught me about this argument is that the moral, theological, and ontological piggyback on the cosmological. So if you don't establish the principle of cause and effect, and that every effect must have a cause, you know, the world's an effect, therefore the world must have a cause. If you don't establish that one first, then uh, the, the argument is not as strong, okay? Yeah. And I think this is part of the problem sometimes that, uh, people don't establish that, um, you know, once every effect uh, implies that there there must be a cause. The world is an effect, therefore the world has a cause. Now, my father taught two forms of the argument from cause and effect. You need a beginning causality, right? And you need a current causality. Colossians one seventeen says, in him, all things hold together. And so some Christians just use the first form but the problem with that, I think, the beginning causality argument is that it only makes it necessary for God to be deistic, um, mm. but not theistic. And so theistic is someone who uh, a theistic God basically intervenes because he has to hold us into existence. That's what Colossians 1.17 implies, that if yeah. God didn't hold us into existence, none of us would exist and people object to that but they confuse instrumental causality and efficient causality let me explain the difference if i have a hammer a nail and a board and i'm using the hammer to hit the nail in the board the hammer is the instrumental cause of the nail going into the board but what's the efficient cause it's me right and so your parents are the instrumental cause of your existence, but they aren't the efficient cause of your existence. Why? Because when they die, you don't die, do you? Right. No. So they're the instrumental cause. And so we need a beginning cause and we need a current or sustaining cause for our existence. And once you've established that principle of cause and effect, and you can say, well, there's an intelligent effect, there must be an intelligent cause. If there's a moral effect, there must be a moral uh, cause. And so we can know certain characteristics um, of this God, and we can see that that means he's a theistic God. 
because right. he has intelligence, morality, intentionality, those kinds of things. Yeah, um, and, and the difference then between the deistic God and the theistic God is that in the worldview of deism, you have a creator who basically want, you know, creates the world like a watchmaker might wind up a watch, but then steps back from it and doesn't really get involved in the everyday operations, just kind of let, lets it wind down like, like a watch would wind down. And that's the difference between a deistic God and a theistic God who is actively involved um, at all times in, in creation. And this might be a good time to recommend just probably the best introductory resource on the cosmological argument, the moral argument, and the teleological argument, which is your dad's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, that he wrote with Frank Turek. That, that's the one that really first introduced me to these arguments. And uh, just for anybody listening or watching, don't feel overwhelmed if this is the first time you're hearing some of this stuff. I remember the first time I heard the cosmological argument, it made so much sense to me, but I could not articulate it. I couldn't explain it. It took me about a year of just kind of reading about it and, and researching it and getting it kind of in my bones to be able to uh, talk about it in a way that I didn't sound like I, you know, was just talking nonsense. So it's really okay. Um, but maybe that's a good place to kind of dip your toe in with the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Because if you can demonstrate that the theistic God exists, then that's really going to narrow down your options to all the theistic religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So you've kind of at this point now, we've ruled out New Age, we've ruled out uh, any worldview that's pantheistic, and so now we sort of narrowed it down to those three, but let's move on to number four, which is that if God exists, then miracles are possible. And this is a really important one because miracles is what's going to move us in the direction of figuring out which one of those three religions is actually true. So if God exists, then miracles are possible. Talk about that one. So a miracle is an act of God right? That's how we define miracles. So if God exists, he can act. I mean, it's very simple. Um, and the only way you can deny miracles is to deny the possibility of uh, God's existence. I was, I was reading a transcript of uh, Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew when Anthony Flew was an atheist. And Anthony Flew said to Gary in the debate, Gary, your evidence for Jesus would be a lot more convincing if you've already demonstrated to me that a theistic God exists. And so even before Anthony Flew became a, 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 not a Christian, but a theist, he became a theist, he was kind of helping uh, people to understand, helping Gary to understand that that two-step approach actually really does help a lot. That if you can establish that God does exist, then the evidence for miracles would be a lot more palatable in a lot of people's minds. That's yeah. what Anthony Flew was trying to get at, that it's, it's more possible that Jesus actually did miracles, if you've already established that God, a theistic God already does exist. Yeah. And this is even before he gave up his atheism, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know that he never, you know, became a Christian. Actually, that's the book I recommend, his book that he wrote, 
There is a God, Anthony Flew. That's the book I recommend for Christian parents who have children uh, that have left the faith. Read that book um, and 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 have your you know son or daughter read that book and then have a discussion with them on because he's very objective and very neutral because yeah he, he never became a Christian but right. did become more honest to the fact that the evidence from both philosophy and science is that there is a God and he changed his mind. I like to think about miracles this way, and I probably got this from your dad or some version of this from your dad. But when you're trying to convince somebody that Jesus was raised from the dead, I mean, that sounds like such a big deal, or that Jesus performed the miracles that we read about in the New Testament, like quieting the storm, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing people. And that can all sound so fantastical, and people are saying, well, that sounds like so crazy. But if you go back to creation, and you think about scientifically through the cosmological argument, you can demonstrate that the universe popped into existence out of nothing. And so it's like, pick your miracle. Either nothing became something out of nothing, or someone or something caused something to come out of nothing. Pick your miracle, because you're starting with the miracle, no matter what your worldview. And the one that makes a lot more sense would be that, not that something came out of nothing just right. uncaused, but there, there was a cause, right? And then reasoning to the theistic God. But think about it this way, and this might, I think this is even a line of your dad's where he said, it's no problem believing that Jesus could turn water into wine when he can right. make water out of nothing. And I was thinking right. about the resurrection. We were singing a song in church yesterday, and it's a popular song, but it, there's this, and I really generally like the song, but there's one part of it where it's talking about the resurrection, and it says, like, all of heaven was holding its breath, and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the angels were just in awe of the resurrection. And, you know, in some great term, I'm sure that they were, but it's like, really, were they that impressed? They watched God create life out of absolutely nothing. I'm sure watching a dead person come back to life was not as impressive as watching God create the universe out of nothing. And so I think we got to go back to creation and remember that really any miracle is possible if creation happened. Well, another way to say it is if you can believe the big miracles, Elisa, you can believe the little miracles. And in fact, I remember I was in Italy doing some training and um, a guy came up to me, a skeptic and said, you know, how can we believe the, the Bible when it was, you know, written by all these, you know, people that can make errors. And I, and I said to him, well, would you agree that if you can do the big miracles, you could do the little miracles? miracles. If God could create the universe out of nothing, don't you think he could ensure his word gets transferred to us yeah. without error, even using imperfect people? And he yeah. said, well, I would see that as less problematic. <laughs> okay, that's something. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. For, All for right. Less problematic. I'll, we'll take that as a win. All right. So that kind of piggybacks on the next point. So number four is if God exists, then miracles are possible. But number five is that miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. Yes. Yes. And that's exactly what we see. Um, you know, Jesus uh, claimed to be God and then he proved it. What When I'm talking to a skeptic or an atheist or someone who doesn't really know much about Christianity. Um, I'll first of all talk about, 
I'll use light apologetics. I think I mentioned that to you before. And the light apologetics to show like, what is the miracles that Jesus did? Well, first of all, what made him different? Well, he did four things that many uh, non-believers will agree with Christians. He died by crucifixion. He was placed in a tomb that was found empty three days later. A number of people claim to have seen him after the resurrection. And those who knew him the best, his disciples, were actually willing to die for that belief. Now, people may die for a belief they think is true, but history has yet to record someone dying for a belief they know to be false. And so if Jesus died, he died for what, I mean, if, if Jesus died, he died either for what, what the disciples knew was true or false. In other words, they were there, they yeah. would know whether Jesus really did die and rise again or not, right? Right, because uh, you and I might might be willing to give our lives for what we believe by faith to be true, on the word of the testimony of the people who were there. But right. the point is that they, as with many other religions, there are martyrs. People would give their lives for what they believe yeah. to be true. But we're not yeah. talking about what somebody would believe to be true. We're talking about what they would actually know to be false. Nobody's going to die and be and be willing to go through the torture and the the all of they went through for something they absolutely knew was false. It just, that doesn't work. Well, and remember Jesus' half-brother James? I mean, New Testament records that none of his brothers believed in him um, before the crucifixion. And afterwards, you know, James and Jude, they were willing to give their life um, for the belief. Now, I've heard Frank Turek use this phrase, what would convince you that your brother was God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's such Frank's got these great little phrases, yeah. and, and that's really true. What would convince you that your brother or sister was God has to be something pretty powerful. And then, what would convince someone who was persecuting Christians uh, and you know killing Christians? What would convince someone who was doing that that yeah, Jesus really is who he claimed to be, and was willing to die for that belief, um, the yeah. Apostle Paul. So I think the Apostle Paul, James' testimony, 1 Corinthians 15, that that resurrection formula, Gary Habermas says that that goes to back to only about five years after Christ's death. Yeah, I mean, you don't have a lot of time for mythology to develop about that, about those events. So those are the miracles that we can say, yes, Jesus, you know, did do a miracle. A miracle can be used to confirm a message from God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He yeah. confirmed a message by, you know, claiming to be God and then doing these miracles. Um, and and the, so the, that's the four. The three is the three things that Jesus did to prove he was God. He lived a sinless and miraculous life, fulfilled prophecy, written hundreds of years before he ever existed, and died and rose from the dead. And we mainly talked about the third one, but um, yeah. there's evidence for the first two as well. Yes. And so uh, now we move on from the, the miracles to number seven, which is the New Testament says 
that Jesus claimed to be God. And one of the things I hear from skeptics sometimes is they'll say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And in a sense, that's he didn't get up in English on, the, on, the, on a mountain and say, I am God. But he did claim to be God at least three times that I've uh, found in Scripture and more implicitly. But when he claimed, for example, to be uh, the Son of God, the, the Pharisees tore their clothes because to claim to be, you know, son, the God is your father was to claim to be equal with God, which was to be claiming to be the same essence and nature. And the Pharisees understood what he was doing, and that's why they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And there's more cases like that where Jesus did did claim that. So the New Testament is historically reliable, and that's number six. I think I might have skipped that. But number seven, the New Testament says that Jesus claimed to be God. So if you have those two things established, um, then then we're up to number seven now. Any, any comments on six and seven? Well, uh, Jesus didn't want people to get the, the, the Old Testament has two pictures of the Messiah. Jesus didn't want to say so much that he was God so openly uh, because he didn't want people to misunderstand. <laughs> there are two messiahs in the Old Testament, one a suffering servant and the other a reigning king. And what, guess which one the people wanted to see him as? Right. The reigning king. And he came to be what? The suffering servant. And so it was very important that people get that message because he knew that people didn't know that there was going to be two comings. He was going to come yeah. once. And it was going to come again. And so that's one reason. The other reason Jesus didn't want to say he was God so openly is he couldn't get anything done. You know, I mean, people would swarm him. And uh, uh, but the verse I liked that really demonstrates that Jesus did the, the Bible claims that Jesus did claim to be God. John 10, 30. Uh, I, you know, uh, I and the father, we are one. It's very clear in the Greek. And then the Jews picked up stones to stone him and said, why are you? And Jesus said, why are you doing this? Because you being man claim to be God. That's so right. my father taught this principle. You interpret the unclear passages in light of the clear ones. And so if there are clear ones in scripture, um, even the phrase son of man in Daniel, I mean, that's clear. That's prophetic. But I'm just saying you, un you interpret the unclear in light of the clear and then Remember, there's two messiahs. So just kind of think from Jesus' perspective, would it be beneficial all the time to go around saying, I am God and you should worship me? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. You might not have ever gotten to the cross, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, especially with the miracles he was performing. Um, yeah. So I also want to give a resource for our audience on the the. We just we could do a whole episode on the historical reliability of the New Testament, but we just don't have time for that in today's episode. So I do want to recommend. Of course, all of this information we're talking about today is in "I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist" by Norm Geisler and Frank Turek. But I also there is a great little book written by a Cambridge scholar, uh, Peter Williams, called "Can We Trust the Gospel?" And that is just 
in my opinion, the best little introduction. It's packed full of information. Uh, Peter Williams does a great job of just giving the layperson the information in an understandable and accessible way. So I really would recommend that to our audience if you want to dig deeper into the reliability of the New Testament, because that's a really important point in this list, because if we can at least show, and again, we're not even talking about inerrancy yet. We're not talking about biblical authority. We're just, when we're making the case for Christianity to show that Christianity is true, we know that atheists and agnostics and people who are not Christians are not coming to the Bible as the Word of God or inerrant. We can talk about that, you know, as as we get further along. But at this point, we're just trying to establish that it gets history right, because if it gets history right, then it records correctly what Jesus claimed about himself. We can learn what uh, just historical points about his resurrection and things like that. So historical reliability of the New Testament is a really important stepping stone. So definitely get that book, Can We Trust the Gospel? So that's six and seven. Okay. Number eight. Go ahead. One other thing. Um, we just published a booklet that we offer free on our website. Go to ngim.org, go to resource. Um, the reason we did this is there was a Christian ministry in Canada wanted to use the 12 points to like a gospel track. And so we we worked on Don Deal and, and, and myself developed this little booklet and it basically goes through all 12 points, but it's something you can give. It's, a, it's not a book, it's a booklet. And it's something that you can give to a non-believer and say, hey, would you read this? And hey, let's talk about this. And you tell me uh, what, what you think about that. So just go to our Very website. Very good. Yeah, ngim.org. And, and then, you can click on the tab, other resources, and then you'll just go right down to 12 points. And there's uh, stuff right there. So that's that's a great resource as well. Okay, let's uh, talk about number eight, that Jesus claimed to be God was miraculously confirmed by A, his fulfillment of many prophecies about himself, B, his sinless and miraculous life, and C, his prediction and accomplishment of his resurrection. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those three little sub points, um, but I'll just quickly comment that you know, we have evidence outside even of the Bible within about 150 years of Jesus' life that he was known to be virtuous and that he was known to be a miracle worker. In fact, one notable example is, I don't know if it's pronounced Celsus, I believe it is, who was the anti-Christian apologist of the second century. He was trying to disprove Christianity. But what was so interesting to me when I started reading Origen's rebuttal of Celsus was that Celsus wasn't claiming Jesus didn't do miracles. He was trying to explain why he was able to do them. He had this story of Jesus going down to Egypt, and it's all very fascinating. But what do we learn from that? That even the skeptic, the hardened skeptic that was trying to disprove Christianity in the second century knew that Jesus had done miracles. So it's, right. it's just powerful evidence there. But talk, maybe maybe bring well, something out in those three. Yes. So in even the Jewish uh, people in the Jewish Talmud, that basically they never deny that Jesus did miracles. They just claim that he did it by the devil's power, not God's power. Yeah. So I just think that, that that's amazing that, that basically you don't have people that are denying that Jesus wasn't a miracle worker. I mean, Josephus even talked about this. The, the one, uh, you know, example of Josephus that's not contradictory. There are some that are, uh, but but some of the manuscripts of uh, where Josephus said these different things 
um, where he said he was a miracle worker. I mean, that that was not really debated much. And even my skeptical friends and that are scholars, uh, I'm not, not sure that they've ever successfully debated that point as well. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's just so many things. You see, here's a perspective I think we should have that God has left enough evidence so that people who want to believe can take that step of faith, yeah. but not so much that they're forced to spend eternity with him when they don't want it. Yeah, and that's the thing that always strikes me when atheists rail against the idea that hell exists. There's a place of separation from God. I just want to ask the average atheist, do you want to be in the presence of the God you hate even now when you have a limited view of him? Do you want to be beholding his full glory for eternity? I mean, apart from what someone might even think the nature of hell is, that sounds like uh, a they wouldn't even want to be in. That sounds like hell. It, it sounds like hell. Was it C.S. Lewis who even talked about the blades of grass for the atheist in heaven would be like razor blades, or there's some some sort of a a quote like that uh, from Lewis, I believe. But yeah, so that that's a great point. And then of course, part of that point is that uh, Jesus claimed that he was going to be raised to the dead from the dead. And then he was, there's, again, we can't, we can't go into it in this podcast, but there's so much great evidence for the resurrection. I've done podcasts on that. I've done one in particular with Gary Habermas. So I would recommend our listeners go back in the archives and look at that one. There's a great book I would recommend by, uh, it was by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona called, um, oh, I can't, now I can't think of it. It's, but just look those two names up. Do you know what it's called? The case for the resurrection. That's that the it? one. The case for the resurrection. Yes, that's Very right. Uh, yeah. So, so look that up because if I think honestly, every Christian should be able to just give a little five minute case for the resurrection, um, right. and I find that honestly, to everybody who's listening and watching, that's the number one thing I do when I go speak to younger audiences, and it blows their mind because they did not know that there was evidence that even. Skeptical and atheist scholars will grant certain points. Uh, of course, right. they they're going to analyze those points differently. But um, really powerful evidence for the resurrection. So then that brings us to point number nine: is that if all that is true, if Jesus, you know, lived a sinless and miraculous life, we have all these fulfillment of prophecies about himself, and he predicted his resurrection and then accomplished it. Number nine is therefore Jesus is God. So we're we're getting to the deity of Jesus now. So um, this is an important point because um, some people will use the evidence for the resurrection and reinterpret it through their own worldview. Let me illustrate this. One day I was talking to a Hindu graduate student um, and I was using, this was many years ago, I was using a Josh Mandal approach more than a carpenter. I was giving her all this evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And after I gave her all that evidence, she looked me right in the eye and said, well, you know, I believe we all have the power to do what Jesus did. So what was she doing? She was taking the evidence for the resurrection and reinterpreting it through her worldview of what? Pantheism, right? Yeah, that's very new age and even popular in progressive Christianity, the so, universal so, Christ idea. 
So if you only share the evidence for the resurrection, as my father would say, well, maybe Jesus just tapped into the force, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's why it's important to do two-step apologetics and establish the worldview of theism first. Because if there is a theistic God, then when you look at the evidence for Jesus, it does prove that he is God. But it doesn't necessarily prove he is God if all you look is at the evidence, but don't establish, first of all, that there is a theistic God. That's and right. This is something that I am much more committed to now, Elisa. I mentioned to you that after uh, my father left us in 2019, I developed a friendship with this skeptical scholar, and I would see how we would debate different people. and when these Christians didn't use that theistic approach first and then showed the evidence for Jesus, it wasn't a strong an argument. And I thought, man, you know, I thought all Christians knew this. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, my dad, you know, has been around for, for many, many years teaching all this. And yet there's so many Christians that don't under, and that's why, that's especially why these 12 points yeah. at least are so important for Christians to memorize. And honestly, I think just with what I do in my ministry and my audience, where we talk about progressive Christianity so often, uh, panentheism is a very popular yeah. view in progressive Christianity. And so making that case for the theistic God as opposed to the pantheistic or panentheistic God is going to be key, especially if you're wanting to evangelize your progressive Christian friends. So uh, that's just a great point there. Uh, so, okay, so Jesus is God, that's number nine. Number 10 right. then is whatever Jesus, who is God, teaches is true. It's like the, the guy who predicted his death and resurrection and raised himself from the dead gets to call the shots, right? Right. But the, here's something we need to help people understand is that if Jesus says something, by definition, it is truth because God cannot err because it's how you understand evil. Uh, Augustine said evil is a privation of good. So God is infinitely good. God can't do evil. God can't lie. God must speak the truth. And sometimes I think we don't clearly understand this point because we forget that we're talking about a theistic God who cannot do evil because evil is a privation of good. One of the things I, I do with skeptics and atheists sometimes is say, help me understand something. Do you determine what is good based on the standard of evil, or do you determine what is evil based on the standard of good? Which one is it? And if they're honest, and Tom Jump wasn't, but if they're honest, they'll say, I determine, like this one young lady said one day, I determine what is evil based on the standard of good. And I said, so good is primary. And then she said, yes. Said, so then God must be primarily good. And she said, yes. And I said, so then God must be more powerful than the evil spirits that came after him. See, she was more concerned about the evil spirits. Mm. And I used that uh, uh, question to get her to understand that 
she shouldn't fear these evil spirits who are lesser because mm. God is primary. So, okay. So once we understand that, yes, God cannot lie. Therefore, when Jesus, who is God, speaks the truth, we can, you know, he's yeah. telling the truth, right? We yeah. can trust him to tell the truth. Right. And this brings us to our final two points, which... I'll bring our audience's attention back to something I mentioned earlier when we were back down around, what was it, number six, that the New Testament is historically reliable. Why did we start there? We started there because we're trying to build a case here, right? These are the 12 points. We're building up to something. And now is where we bring in the idea that the Bible is the Word of God. And if the Bible is the Word of God, then everything it teaches is true. And this is how we get to biblical authority and inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility, all of that. So that's exactly what these last two points are, is that number 11 is that Jesus taught that the Bible is the Word of God, and then number 12 is the conclusion. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the Word of God, and anything opposed to it is false. So I just want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that we are not saying that the Bible is the Word of God just because the Bible says so. It does right. say so, but that's not the only reason. I, if I find a piece of paper on the ground that says this piece of paper is the Word of God, I'm not going to believe it just because it says it. Yeah. There's all this other stuff going on in the background that's building a cumulative case to get to uh, these final two statements. Right. And we don't start with the Bible is the inspired word of God when we're trying to build a case with a skeptic or an atheist. We start with the Bible is historically reliable document. Otherwise, we're arguing in a circle because we're saying, I believe the Bible because of Jesus and I believe in Jesus because of the Bible. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that. And if we had, uh, Elisa, if we had started doing this and teaching this in the 60s and 70s, mm. I just wonder where our culture would be, whether they would have been a little more accepting, because this is what I learned in making this movie about my dad. My dad was one of the few people that were really helping people to understand that all truth is God's truth and that we can build bridges with people before we even bring out the Bible. And yeah. there weren't a lot of Christians back in the 60s and 70s that were doing that. And our culture just moved a different direction. And I just, it's its very sad to me that the church has taken so long mm. to realize these biblical principles. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that all truth is God's truth. And Romans 1 talks about how God has not only revealed him. God has revealed himself by inscribing his truth on our minds and our hearts, Romans 1 and Romans 2. So even if people didn't pick up a Bible, God was saying, look, um, we can build these conversations with people. The Bible says in Romans 1 that it's plain to them yeah. that we can you know, build these conversations with them just from their knowledge that God has inscribed on their mind in their heart and start so there.
So good. Well, I want to thank my guest, uh, David Geisler, for coming on the show today. Definitely check out his website, ngim.org. From that website, you can sign up to host a viewing of the film, Norm Geisler, Not Qualified. I've seen the film. It is tremendous. I highly recommend it. It's so faith-building and uh, moving and heartwarming. Uh, so just if you want to maybe host that in your church or a small group, go to ngim.org. You can also check out other resources like uh, David's conversational evangelism training. There's the Norm Geisler Institute with different products you can look at, video streaming packages. So again, that's ngim.org. And so I always end by talking about Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is the seminary that David's dad, Norm Geisler, founded. I love SES. You all know I love SES. They shepherded me through my faith crisis. I'm currently a student just wrapping up my philosophy class. I have learned so much this semester. That's going to be uh, just supplementing my ministry in such a powerful way. So if you want to check out the options at SES, go to ses.edu slash Elisa. You can download a free ebook there. And uh, just, again, highly recommend SES uh, if you are looking for higher education. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe and click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms, it helps so much. If you go over and rate and review, share this out on social media, click like, leave a comment. All of that helps with the algorithms. And in the meantime, as we pursue Christ, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.